This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Welcome to this episode. So I am recording two episodes for this week. One was with another pediatrician, Dr. Nicole Baldwin, talking about uh, pediatricians and our views on vaccination. And this episode, I am welcoming two Psy moms, Allison and Layla, who are going to be talking about vaccination, their role as Psy moms, what Psy moms is, and just a little bit more about the myths behind vaccines. Thank you, ladies, for being here today. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So explain to everyone listening what Moms is, how you guys started it, why you're a part of it, and what the mission is. Okay, I'll take that one. This is Allison here. So Moms, we're an educational nonprofit organization that the five of us started all together. Um, we started the organization back in, I think, 2017, Layla? Is that accurate? That sounds about right, yeah. Think about 2017. The five of us had all been working together since uh, 2015. Um, And we started working together. Just We wrote an open letter to some celebrity moms um, who had said some things that were inconsistent with the scientific consensus. And this inspired a woman named Natalie to make a documentary about us. So that's how we all started working together. And then we just... We both, we all in, enjoyed each other's company as friends and we enjoyed working together. And so we formed this organization, Simoms. And so we have our website, simoms.com, and we're on all the social media platforms and we try to share information, um, mostly for parents. Um, it definitely comes from our lens of being parents, but it's really information for everybody. Yeah, basically what we had noticed was that there was a lot of misinformation targeting parents because as parents, we worry so much about our kids. Like our kids are our most precious, vulnerable things. And uh, but we only have so much time and so much energy to worry. And that leads us to really misassess risk. And we do it pretty often. So things that are new and unknown to us 
we perceive as being particularly risky. But things that we grew up with or things that our parents grew up with, we're like, ah, nah, that's been around for a long time. That's perfectly safe. So we do things like letting our kids ride bikes without helmets every now and then. And we think to ourselves, oh, you know, I've done that. It's safe. It should be fine. Or we text and drive. Um, and we think to ourselves, oh, you know, that's that everybody does it, you know, or I, I've done it so many times and nothing bad has happened or I'm particularly careful. And those are ways that we misassess uh, risks that are quite dangerous around us. But things that are new, like uh, new food types, like right now there's um, different types of meat that are actually vegan. Um, like there's a lot of concern about that. Um, or uh, we worry about, in this case, vaccines that are new, that are unfamiliar to us. So we write a lot about uh, about uh, things that concern parents, and we try to frame it within the proper context of risk and hazards. So uh, we've written... Uh, a lot and made infographics on a wide variety of topics from the risks of gun ownership and if you choose to own a gun, how to properly store it uh, to make sure that your children are as safe as possible. Uh, and we've also written about food and GMOs and also, of course, vaccines. And that's why I love your account and I love your website because you guys, I mean, obviously, we're just talking about vaccines right now. Um, in in regards to Vaccine Awareness Month, but the variety of things that you discuss. So I recently found your website and I, you know, as a pediatrician and a mom who also is pro-science, I was like, how did I not know about this until now? And that's the power of social media to bring me to you uh, because you have so much useful info. You even had something about breastfeeding and formula, a lot of, you know, just debunking myths that people are always, you know, talking about and taking sides on, on social media. So their website, everyone listening, I'm going to be adding it to my show notes and also their social media platforms because you can search through their their website for a plethora of different information, like Layla was saying. And it is all pro-science. It's all evidence-based. And it really just breaks everything down in a easy to understand way. So even if you're not a scientist, even if you're not a mom, you're going to really enjoy it because, or, you know, if you're not a parent, because it's just really easy to, easy to digest. So again, I'm so glad we're here, or they're here today. We are going to be talking about vaccination for the purpose of this episode, but I'm sure I'll have you all on again, hopefully, um, to talk about other topics as well. We'd love to. What exactly is your guys's, you know, specialty um, that you guys are kind of involved in, each of you? Uh, so um, I have a PhD from the University of Toronto up in Canada um, in molecular genetics. And I did my PhD in a subfield of uh, human genetics called epigenetics. And I worked on trying to find the genetic basis for a rare disorder called Russell Silver syndrome. Um, uh, but since I graduated, I have been working in the biotech sector. So I've been in the biotech sector for about 12 years now, and I specialize in DNA sequencing. And it's a lot of fun. I really, really love it. Um, right now, I'm a staff scientist in a uh, sequencing applications company. And very importantly, everything that I say today is my own opinion is completely unaffiliated with uh, my my employer. So um, I don't even think they know I'm on this podcast today. <laughs> so uh, yes, uh, it's it's completely unaffiliated with my employers. And I 
uh, started working for my most recent employer back in January. And this is Allison now. So I, um, my PhD from Washington University in St. Louis is, it's a little confusing there because of how their program is structured. So I was in a large umbrella program called the biology and bio, bi- biology and biomedical sciences. Sorry about that. Um, and then I was in the molecular genetics and genomics program, but I ended up doing all of my dissertation work in neuroscience. So I have this genetics piece and this neuroscience piece. Um, and then after my PhD, I went to Emory University in Atlanta and I did two postdoctoral fellowships, um, one in the School of Public Health and one in the School of Medicine. And there my training was in neurotoxicology and actually also in epigenetics. Um, so I am currently and for the past four years have been almost exactly four years. It's actually a week past four year anniversary of starting my own lab. Um, so I'm an assistant professor at Michigan State University, and I'm in the Department of Translational Neuroscience. Um, and in my lab, I focus on how environmental exposures affect the development of Parkinson's disease with a specific focus on the role of epigenetics in that process. And so I love that all five of you obviously have different in terms of different interests and different kind of special specialties in a, in a way, correct? Yes. Awesome. So we also have Anastasia is a plant biologist. Um, and she is a regulatory scientist at USDA. Um, and then uh, Coven and Jenny are journalists, and they have just different interests and different background also. So we each bring our own unique perspective. You guys are like a superhero team. <laughs> we do actually have trading cards on our website that list both our superpowers and our weaknesses. That's awesome. No, it sounds like it. I literally yeah. am listening to you. And obviously I fan, I'm fangirling also because I am so, I'm so pro science. And I, like I, for everyone listening, I emailed them and when they responded like, Hey, we'd love to come on. I was like, Oh my gosh, like they responded. This is so great. And so now listening to you all talk about your training and your education, um, it's like the the modern version version of a superhero. You guys are moms. You guys are scientists, and I love it. So this is going to be great. So my first question, obviously, is you know you guys are both mothers and scientists. So how do you navigate the information information out there regarding vaccines? Because I know a lot of people are going on the internet, going onto Google, going onto Facebook or social media, and I want to know where you guys would start in terms of finding information on vaccines? So I would say first that you should not turn to social media as your first pass for information. Um, I know that a lot of us have parenting groups and we have other groups on social media that are, you know, formed around shared interests, but you never really know who on social media someone is when they're sharing. So Um, I always turn to medical experts and consensus opinions. So like I would check the CDC website. They have great information about vaccines. I would check the American Academy for Pediatrics. Talk to your own pediatrician. I mean, pediatricians are full of information about vaccines. And, you know, there's the handouts that you give to us every time we get back, we get our kids vaccinated. Um, And the other thing to look for is when you're looking for organizations, because there are some organizations that have names that sound like a reputable organization, make sure their message is consistent with the other organizations that you know. Like there shouldn't be anything that's way out there and totally different than what CDC and the AAP are saying and the American Medical Association. So I really look for those kind of things. Um, And then outside of expert 
organizations. Over time, as you read more science-related content, you'll learn who is representing those views properly. Like I, there are science journalists that I just know are good. So I, I have, they have earned my trust. And so that's kind of how I navigate the, the mess of information that we encounter online. Yeah. I, I think the parallel between vac- the vaccine quote unquote debate and uh, the climate science or climate change debate is is really close. Like, I believe that climate change is in large part driven by human activity, but I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a uh, astrophysicist. I, I, I know very, very little about, about the science there, but uh, every reputable uh, scientific organization in the world has upheld the scientific consensus behind climate change, that climate change is happening and that we're contributing towards it. And I view uh, the science of vaccines very, very similarly. Um, if there's an organization out there that holds an opinion that differs from the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists, then maybe their viewpoint is incorrect. Okay. And it would be wrong to say that every single scientist in the world believes that climate change is real in the same way that it would be wrong to believe that every single medical doctor and every single scientist out there say that vaccines are safe. Okay. But we go by the body of evidence, what the vast majority of scientific papers and scientific publications have established. And that is that vaccines are relatively safe compared to not vaccinating. And uh, that the vaccines we have today are the safest we've ever had in history. And thankfully, our children today are vaccinated against more diseases than in the past. So it's very, very possible that our children can be one of the healthier generations especially now with the HPV vaccine that, uh, you know, cuts back on many forms of cancer that, um, you know, our parents' generation or even our generation may, may have had. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy that you guys are clarifying the not going to social media, not going online, because we're recording this episode during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am practicing, you know, in a pediatric office, and I am flabbergasted as to how many parents are vaccine hesitant now compared to, you know, five months ago. And as I'm sitting there in my PPE, you know, with masks and gowns and gloves and, you know, we're in shortages in a way I'm like looking and I'm like, wait, what, what are we, what are we talking about here that you guys are concerned, you know, and I, you're hesitant right now. And then we go through all the different things that they're concerned about. And they say, you know, I read this online and I asked them exactly what you all are saying. I'm like, where did you read it online? And I tell them, I'm like, this is a consensus across all of us. I'm sitting in front of you also as a mother and a pediatrician. I would not want your child to get this vaccine if it wasn't in their best interest. And, you know, when they're like, well, my friend's friend said this, and then their child had this outcome. I tell them, I'm like, you, you, we don't know the whole story. We as a pediatric, pediatric practice scientists, we're in the business of helping our children and helping families. That's all we want. And it's just, it's so confusing in many ways as a, as a mom and pediatrician, when I'm sitting there, I feel like I'm in this alternate kind of world where I'm like, are we, are we here together? Do we know what this world is right now that we don't have a vaccine for this COVID virus? And this is what we're dealing with without, you know, one vaccine. 
Um, so it's it's hard. And I again, this is why I'm so grateful for you all being on here, uh, because it's important that people hear scientists, two scientists, a physician and and three mothers that are on this call right now uh, talking about, you know, how amazing vaccines are and why we vaccinate our children and for me, my patients. So why did you both decide to vaccinate your children? So in my case, it never really occurred to me not to vaccinate. Like, so I was raised in Venezuela and in Venezuela, anti-vax just wasn't a thing. You know, it, it didn't, that movement didn't really exist. And my brother was a medical a medical doctor in Venezuela. And so was my sister-in-law. And I actually asked them once I moved here about the anti-vax movement in Venezuela. And they're like, no, I mean, people literally line up to get their vaccines. Um, he said that there's a lot of other issues, many, many, many other issues, but vaccines was definitely not one of them. And at the same time, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned that I went into industry and I have a lot of friends who went into the pharmaceutical industry and I have a lot of friends who stayed in academia and none of them, including the ones who went into pharmaceutical industry, none of them didn't vaccinate their children. All of them vaccinated their children. None of them were even vaccine hesitant, meaning that they delayed the vaccinations, the, the vaccinations for their children. They all stuck to the vaccine schedule. And the benefits of it just seemed so, so apparent to me that they prevent deadly diseases like measles, tetanus, and as I mentioned previously today, cancer. And for me, it was similar. It was not vaccinating was never on the table. It never really occurred to me to be an option to not vaccinate and to not do things on the CDC recommended schedule. I don't even think that when my daughter was born in 2008, I was even really aware of the whole anti-vaccine movement. I kind of had this vague idea that there were, you know, Jenny McCarthy was out there saying some ridiculous things, but who would, I, I thought, who would listen to Jenny McCarthy? She was on, like, she's known for Baywatch. Like, it didn't really, like, naively, obviously, in hindsight, but I it, I didn't see how that was going to carry weight. And I mean, that was naive because they it was already pretty big in 2008. But my first real encounter with anti-vaccine sentiment was, um, when we, after I graduated with my PhD and we moved to Atlanta, I didn't work for a little while and I stayed home with my daughter. So we went to like playgroups and that's where I really started to encounter this kind of stuff. And I think for me with my science background, like it was really apparent to me, like how, it, how to parse those arguments and figure out where they failed and where they made sense and where they didn't. So for me, it, it never really was an issue and those things didn't gain traction for me. So, but I, I can see how if you don't have the benefit of that training, it can be very, very confusing. And why do you think it's the anti-vaccine movement has gained so much traction, especially in the United States? Because I do agree that, um, you know, like you said, Leila, that you were raised in Venezuela. A lot of the anti-vaccine sentiment is in developed countries, um, especially the United States. Do you guys have any thoughts as to why that gained so much popularity? I don't know. It's similar to things we see with COVID right now. There's like this sense of individually, individuality, individualism. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. I like that. People think that they can know as much as an expert is part of it. Um, I think mm -hmm. we don't really have a great sense of protecting each other in the whole community. Like 
calls for protect your community and wear a mask, get vaccinated, like don't carry as much weight here as they do necessarily in other places. Um, And I think the same with COVID, there are individuals who stand to benefit from anti-vaccine sentiments who fund these initiatives and fund these efforts. Um, So I think perhaps in, um, in North America and in Europe, those groups have more funding and have more money to spread their messages. You know, they're very, they're, they're very strategic, I find, in, in what they do. And we do see some of these like anti-vaccine groups that go into developing countries and start to spread their misinformation that they do some real damage um, in places that really, really, really need vaccines. And you mentioned earlier on in the um, in this conversation that a lot of the these organizations sound official. Uh, you know, if you go, if you look at them, they when their website and I've seen these. I'm not going to name them, but I go on and I'm like, wow, this actually looks like a legitimate sounding science organization when it's actually not science. Um, and then obviously we have the social media movement, which I I feel I mean from the pediatrician mom standpoint that most of my families who are anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant are getting this misinformation on social media accounts. So celebrities, like you both said earlier on, that this your whole organization started with, uh, you know, talking to celebrity moms who are spreading misinformation in a way, right? Um, but I, I, re- I see a lot of celebrities, you know, some are using their platform for pro-science and some are going completely the opposite direction. And like you said, it's just this feeling of I'm, I think I know more than the experts. They don't know anything. Um, and it's it's sad. I mean, it's sad that all of us have, you know, taken our career and our life and done, you know, our service is for helping children and helping, you know, be pro-science. And so it's kind of hard to to watch this all unfold in front of you in a way, in my for me at least. I, I think also, again, it's that issue of risk. And, and misassessing risk. So I often give this example. So let's say you were in a, a restaurant and the server brings you a glass of water, okay? You would probably drink that water without thinking twice about it. But let's say somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I, I saw your server. It, it looked like they were going to do something to your drink, okay? Would you drink that, right? Probably not. You'd probably throw it out. Okay. But let's say a very trusted friend came up to you and said, actually, I'm pretty sure I was watching the server the whole time. Nothing happened. Okay. And especially depending on who this person is, the second person is, okay, you may or may not drink the beverage. All right. But no matter what, no matter what, there's always going to be this lingering doubt in the back of your head that what if this person is wrong? Right. And as you go through that process, the the risks and the consequences change. Like, let's say you paid thirty dollars for that drink, or, or or forty dollars for that drink, okay? And the and you ask for a refill, and they're like, "No, we're not going to refill that for you. You know, you have to pay again." Odds are, you actually would go ahead and drink it, even you know, even despite that lingering doubt. But let's say it was a glass of water you know, there's no cost to changing that glass of water. But what if it was in the middle of a drought and there actually is a cost to changing that glass of water? So our entire scenario changes depending on the information we have and depending on the social, economic, all those factors come into play with this simple glass of water just because one person told you something and you don't know if that person is right or not, okay? So it's it's the same with, 
basically any information we receive, especially if we think that there's no consequence to it. So let's say in today, there's not a measles outbreak. Somebody tells us something that makes us doubt the safety of the measles vaccine. And you think to yourself, ah, oh, you know, I'll wait a little bit longer just to make sure, just to be safe, right? And we don't know when there might be a measles outbreak. And it's because we're all vaccinating that there is no measles outbreak. Otherwise, it would be like COVID part two, right? Uh, so we don't think about those consequences and we more readily are willing to accept that misinformation. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess meals. Chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. And I think just to get back to your original question for this little section um, about why, why this anti-vaccine movement kind of took hold here, I think we can't ignore the role that false balance in the media played. And I think that in the past few years, they have gotten much better about this on a variety of issues. But for a long time, you would never have known that like, 99% of the evidence supports the safety and efficacy of currently available vaccines, right? Every news show, every news article was one for one, one anti, one pro, you know, like, and, and that I think did a real public disservice. I want to also talk about one of the biggest questions I get asked, you know, on my social media and obviously on in my office about vaccine schedules. So a lot of families either are like, it's just too much, too many vaccines, or they want to go off schedule. They want to delay, like you were saying, like the MMR. What, tell me more about the vaccine schedule, how it's created, why we recommend it to be as such. 
Yeah, so I'll take this one because I've actually written a post about this on the Simon's blog, and I, I think the title is "Where Does the Vaccine Schedule Come From?" So it's really easy to find if that is your question. Um, so the official thing that we say is that the vaccine schedule is set to provide maximum protection against disease as early as possible without complications or interactions between vaccines. So I'll explain that in a little more detail as we go through. So first, the first question is who sets this schedule, right? People want to know. Is it just a bunch of random people off the street? Is it experts? So it is experts. So there's a, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is a committee within the CDC that has 15 voting members. Um, and they are selected by someone from the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the umbrella organization that oversees CDC and NIH and some other organizations in the federal government. Um, and so these members... 14 of them have to have expertise in vaccines, in the immune system, pediatricians, um, internal medicine, nursing, family medicine, public health, infectious disease, like all those related fields. And then there's one consumer representative who's there to provide perspective on the social and community aspects of vaccination. So some of the things that Layla was talking about, like all these other things that come into vaccines that aren't expressly the science. Um, there are also some non-voting members like representatives from federal agencies who are involved in immunization programs are on the committee. Um, and then there are other non-voting members from other organizations with related expertise. So I think that that's like from the American Academy of Pediatrics and stuff like that. Um, so they meet three times a year. So they review the data three times a year and make changes to the vaccine the vaccine schedule if there's new data to warrant a change. So if they're finding out that some new formulation of a vaccine has some unanticipated side effects, they will change the vaccine schedule. If a new vaccine has come out, they will decide if they should incorporate it. Um, so this is done three times a year. So this is done very regularly. So that's why sometimes you do see changes. Um, and so the things that they consider when they test the schedule. So if we talk about how they're actually setting it. So the first thing that they do is the vaccines have to be approved by the FDA. So that means they have to have demonstrated both safety and efficacy, because that's the things that the FDA requires for the approval of any medication or medical device. They also consider the severity of the disease. So a disease that is more severe in children, they will try to put earlier, so you're protecting them earlier when they're going to have the most severe effects. Um, they also look at like the background prevalence of the disease um, if there's no vaccine. So they prioritize diseases that are more common and you're more likely to get. They also consider how effective vaccines are at different ages because some vaccines, are, your, immune, your immune system responds differently at different ages to different vaccines. So they consider that to make sure that you're getting the vaccine at an age when your immune system can respond to it. They also look at whether vaccines interact um, and they consider whether there are any allergies or medical contraindications. And those are all the things that go onto those vaccine information sheets that you get when you take your kids for their vaccines. Um, so they consider all of these things. It's very complicated. Um, and all of this information is actually available on the CDC website. You can see the minutes and videos of all their meetings, um, everything that they decide, the full list of contraindications and precautions that they list. So that's, that's who creates the vaccine schedule and how, how they make the vaccine schedule. So do you think, I mean, in your opinion, and obviously I 
I think we might agree. Do you think that it's too much too early? Because that's one thing parents are like, well, why would my child, my baby need so many in the first year of life? And what are your thoughts or what would you say to a family who's, you know, more hesitant about that? So I have two points to respond to that. So first, the other way you see this is like, am I overloading their immune system with all these shots? It's like a similar concern there. So when you get a disease, your your immune system is even more challenged than when you get the vaccine for that disease. That's one reason that we prefer vaccine-acquired immunity over natural immunity, right? It's because you, you're controlling the number of antigens and you're getting immunity without getting sick. Um, the other thing that comes up is that, so in 1980, so like my vaccine schedule, I was born in 1978, um, the vaccine schedule protected against only seven diseases with 15,000 antigens in the vaccines. So I think the stat is that in 2017, the vaccine schedule now protects against 18, or sorry, 16 diseases, but only 173 antigens. So vaccines have actually gotten much, much more targeted Um and protect against more diseases with like less activation of your immune system. So I think, you know, the things that we're exposed to in our daily life and if we were exposed to the disease is much more overwhelming to your immune system than the vaccine itself. Um, And then the other thing that is really important is this vaccine schedule is based on data and testing and the deliberation of this very large committee of people with a lot of expertise and collective knowledge, right? So if you pick an alternate schedule or delay vaccines, where does that even come from? It comes from nowhere. Like someone literally made it up. And so it's not supported by data. You might have vaccine interactions. Um, You're also increasing the risk to your child because maybe you're delaying something that's very much at risk to younger children. And now you've waited and so they might, they might not build up sufficient immunity. They might not have immunity when they need it. So to, the way that we like to say it is that delaying vaccinations adds risk, but does without adding any benefit. Yeah. And it also means more doctor's visits. I mean, the, the, the vaccine schedule to my understanding is that to some extent it's, it's built around child, the, the wellness child visits, the, the well child visits. Yeah. So that's another thing that they build into the schedule that I didn't talk about. I think it's in the post, but they try to, so some of the combo vaccines um, and the vaccines you get at the same time are so that you don't have to make as many visits to the doctor and that you don't have as many needles, right? Like we do MMR is three, DTaP is three diseases. So it's one injection, but multiple diseases. So that they're thinking about all those things so that people are more likely to get them. Because if you had to go back to the doctor every month for a different vaccine, it would probably be much harder to get kids in. Oh, yeah. And you like you said it even perfectly, like the MMR is three different illnesses, so measles, mumps, rubella. And even within, um, like different practices have different uh, different vaccines. But like, for example, Pediarix is a very common vaccine that includes three different components, meaning D, your DTaP, your polio, and your hepatitis B. So you're getting polio, which is one, hepatitis B, and then the DTaP is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis in one needle, which, you know, a lot of parents who are hesitant are like, well, that's too many, you know, too much at once. And like you said, perfectly, it's actually better. And it's studied that these are safe to do together. And it's better to do it that way rather than coming back again, doing a needle again, doing more injections and more visits. And the other thing that I think maybe we can talk about is 
boosters, meaning parents like, well, why do I have to get the P- the pediatrics? Um, and I'm giving you an example because different practices may have different combinations of these vaccines, but example being pediatrics. And then we also do something called the Prevnar, which is a pneumococcal vaccine. We do something called um, the uh, Hib meningitis, and then we do rotavirus at like the two month four month and six month. And parents are like, well, why would we have to do the same vaccines three rounds? And I think people need to understand that you it's all studied that, hey, you can't give all of the immunity in one shot. You have to give it a little bit and then you maybe get about 50 percent immunity and then you get a booster two months later to build up the immunity even more because the body needs time to actually build an immune response. And then you can't overdo that in just one big load. Correct. Yeah. So uh, actually, I have, a, I have a story about this. So I was born uh, at a time in Canada when children only got one MMR shot. And it was later uh, found that uh, not enough people were getting immunity with just one shot. It was uh, around 90 to 95 percent. And we needed uh, more of the population to to have immunity um, to prepare, to protect our communities. So they increased the number of vaccinations to two. But I slipped through the cracks because I moved to Venezuela and I didn't get that second one. Um, so later on in college, when I when I went back and uh, I needed uh, my vaccination record uh, to 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 get into grad school because we were going to work with um with uh, biological samples. Uh, They asked for my vaccination record and I went to my doctor and they did a titer to see if I was still immune against uh, measles and I wasn't. So uh, I had to get another booster shot and uh, I'm so happy that that I did my titers to make sure. So, uh, and that's again, back to Allison's point about the vaccine schedule, that's data that was gained over time right? They looked at the evidence. They saw that not enough of our population was getting immunity with just a single shot. So they bumped it up to two. And, uh, and uh, I think that's a good example of why we need uh, these multiple shots. It's the same with the HPV vaccine. Um, Depending on when you get your, your HPV vaccine, the, the number of shots that you get varies. And um, if you're older, I understand that you need more shots than when than when you're younger, um, uh, than when you get it on the on the currently recommended schedule. Um, so, uh, yeah, stick to the schedule and get the number of recommended shots to make sure that you're immune to the uh, immune uh, against the diseases. There's also been a similar issue. I think it's with the pertussis vaccine. So the pertussis vaccine, there was a change in formulation to reduce side effects. And so the recommendation was for one dose and then, or maybe it was two, whatever the recommendation for the doses were at that time, they, they were finding that we were having like some more cases of pertussis than previously. And they figured out that it was because of the new formulation, while it did reduce side effects, was also not producing as robust an immune response so that they realized that they needed a booster. And so by doing the booster, what you were able to do was keep the side effects low by using the new formulation, but by having the booster, you got the same level of prolonged immunity. So it, it's it's a balancing act. And I think another you know another comment was about like you were mentioning about your titers being you know not up to date for your um, MMR. The ver- the chickenpox vaccine that I think came out in the nineties, I believe. I don't know ninety five or mid nineties, and I'm I'm an eighties baby, so I was born in eighty five, and 
I ended up same thing, Leela, like I went to, you know, went through medical school process and I checked my titers and it was something called equivocal, which means that I'm not fully vaccinated. So I had to do my chicken pox um, again and do, I actually had to do the whole series again because I wasn't, for some reason, I wasn't responding to the initial varicella vaccine. And that is so important because if I had never known, I mean, obviously I'm in healthcare, I'm around children. Yes, we vaccinate chickenpox now, so we're not seeing it as much, but it can happen. Um, and I want to talk about the chickenpox and, you know, use that as a segue to talk about chickenpox, because a lot of parents will say, well, the diseases are eliminated. So why I don't see chickenpox anymore. So why do I have to vaccinate my children for something that doesn't exist? Polio doesn't exist. Why am I vaccinating my child against polio? So do you guys have a comment about that? Yeah. So, so chickenpox is, I mean, it, of of all the vaccines, it's the one I hear most where parents, because they themselves, just like us, got chicken pox, or in your case, didn't get chicken pox, uh, they, they got chicken pox and they all survived. Um, they're like, hey, you know, it's it's a week off school. It's it's a little bit of itchiness. It's a little bit of a rash, and then it's fine. And I have and I have the this is my chicken pox scar right here. Uh, a constant reminder <laughs> of chicken pox. Um. Uh, so, but chicken pox can have real consequences. Uh. So, in the United States, before the vaccine, a hundred children died each year from chicken pox, and nine thousand children were hospitalized each year from complications of the chicken pox. And there's also a real socioeconomical impact of chicken pox that we often don't think of. Sure, some parents might think, "Oh, it's a week off school, you know, it's not a big deal." But for some parents, that's a big deal. A week off of work is something that they cannot afford. And a week off of work can mean the difference between being able to afford your rent or not, okay? So when we let our children get something like chicken pox, sure, they might be fine, but what about the other members of our community who might get chicken pox from our children, right? Who may not be able to afford it. And another really important point about chicken pox is that once you get chicken pox, once you get it, quote unquote, in its natural form, the virus lies latent in our bodies and crops up later on as shingles. And shingles, my mom has gotten it, my aunt has gotten it, and my grandma got it. I had it. I had it in my 30s. Not oh old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, my mom said that once the vaccine for shingles came out, she was lining up to get it, right? Because it is so painful and so horrible. And unfortunately, as I understand it, the chick uh, uh, shingles pops up oftentimes when our immune system is weakened. So for example, my grandmother was actually in the hospital because uh, she had broken her neck and uh, she got shingles at that point in her life. You know, she's, it, it was, it was not not a good time. I mean, it's never a good time, but I mean, it it, it can have really painful, devastating consequences. So getting the chickenpox vaccine um, also prevents you from getting shingles, which is uh, a two in one. Pretty awesome. Um, So I wanted to tackle the second part of your question, which was more generally about like the diseases are eliminated. Why do I still need the vaccine? So this is vaccines are kind of a victim of their own success. So the people who are parents now, we have not seen these diseases in the same way that like our grandparents saw these diseases. Um, So and the reason we don't see them is because people have vaccinated. 
So it, there's kind of this like strange cycle happening, except that when people stop vaccinating, like we've seen with measles outbreaks in recent years and other diseases, that these diseases return because they're actually still present in our population. So I wanted to clarify a couple of words and what they mean. So eradication, it means that worldwide, worldwide transmission of a disease is zero. There are no remaining cases of the disease in the world. And so at that point, only when a disease has been eradicated are no intervention measures necessary. So that's when you don't need a vaccine. And so we've only ever in the history of humans eradicated one disease, and that is smallpox. And it took a global immunization program led by the WHO. And so the last known natural case of smallpox was in 1977. So we don't get the smallpox vaccine anymore because it does not exist. It only exists in a few very well-guarded laboratories around the world. Um, elimination, on the other hand, is that is when transmission within a specific geographic area, like a specific country, is no longer active. So when a disease is eliminated, you still need vaccination and intervention measures because you have to keep that disease eliminated. As soon as you let up your guard, the disease is going to make new inroads. And I feel like we're all learning a lesson with this living through the COVID pandemic right now. Like we're all seeing like you can get your numbers down, but all you, all you need is one person to come in and people not take measures and the disease is going to gain a foothold. Um, and so this happens because people travel and stuff, but if people don't, aren't immune, the disease can spread more. So measles was actually eliminated from the U.S. It was declared eliminated in, I think, 2000. Um, but we've had multiple outbreaks because there are pockets of unvaccinated people. So when someone travels to a country where measles is not eliminated and they bring it back to the U.S., if they interact with a pocket of unvaccinated people, there could be an outbreak. And so we still consider measles eliminated in the U.S. because those outbreaks have been contained. Um, there's some like official number, like if the outbreak goes on for so long, then we won't be eliminated anymore. So the point is that a disease is eliminated. You still need vaccines until we can eradicate it. Thank you so much for the, the terminology, because that actually is very helpful for people to hear. And like you said, it, it really is kind of what we're dealing with right now with the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And I have two comments. One was about what Layla said about the chicken pox and how, you know, obviously the shingles, which, by the way, I agree with you. I have not had shingles, but I have friends who had chicken pox illness as a child and end up having to miss work as an adult. Um, multiple times for shingles outbreaks. And it's heartbreaking because we vaccinate now because we you're not going to get the shingles from the vaccine. You're going to get shingles from the active uh, chickenpox infection. And that is a complication that we don't want for our children. The other complication that we I, I want to bring up for chickenpox, which people don't talk about, is hearing loss. So chickenpox can lead to something called vestibular neuritis, which is basically inflammation of the um, vestibular nerve, which hel helps our hearing. And that happens. It can last for months, sometimes even years. And we've seen this. And again, as pediatricians, the reason why we are so pro-vaccine and Every pediatrician should. If there's a pediatrician you're going to that's not pro-vaccine, you really need to question your, um, you know, that doctor a little bit. Um, it's it's because we've seen these illnesses and we've seen these the sequelae of chickenpox, the sequelae of measles, mumps, rubella, the sequelae of um, pertussis. Obviously, yes, I have not seen uh, polio, I've not seen diphtheria, but like Allison said, it's because the vaccine program is working. 
I don't want to see diphtheria. I don't want to see polio again. And there are people around the world living with polio. There are people who are waiting for vaccines because their friend down the street in their small village, wherever, has polio. And so it's, in a way, it's really hard when I am so pro-child and so pro-vaccine that when I think about all the kids around the world that are just waiting to get these life-saving vaccines and how in a privileged country like the United States, you know, we're so lucky to have vaccines. And if you can look at it that way, this is something that is life-saving. It's something that can really, really prevent our children from getting the complications. And it is about benefit and risk because the benefit of a vaccine outweighs the risk of any sort of vaccine um, side effect by, by far, you know, and that's something that we can maybe talk about at the end. Um, because parents commonly say, well, you know, what if I get the side effect? I'm like, the side effects are extremely rare. And like Allison said earlier, if they, the three times a year, if the CDC was seeing that, hey, ooh, this vaccine, something's going on, they would pull it. And even earlier than that, if they heard that there was something going on, there's regulations. And we as pediatricians in the office, like I'm always looking out for my patients, whenever they come back at a four-month visit, six-month visit, 15-month visit, I don't care. I ask, how did they do with the vaccines? Because to me, I know that there's bigger bodies taking care of it, but for my integrity, I'm also going to make sure that I'm doing my due diligence in promoting vaccine safety. It's important that parents hear that, that not only are the big bodies doing it, but every day, pediatricians in their offices are looking day to day, hey, Okay, well, someone said they had maybe some soreness. Someone had a little bit of dizziness after the vaccine. But we're not seeing these horror stories that are being blasted all over social media. And if we did, we wouldn't vaccinate our children or vaccinate our patients because that's not the business we're in, you know? So we had a little anecdote about that. My daughter is just turned 12. And so she had her second dose of HPV, um, which when I told her at before her 11th, birthday, her 11th year checkup that she was going to have to get a vaccine. You know, she grumbled about it. And I was like, but, but it's a, it's a vaccine that's going to lower your risk of cancer. And she was like, it's a vaccine that prevents cancer. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that's really cool. And she was like, oh, all on board. Because it prevent cancer. Like that's a big deal. Um, but it did like predicted side effect, known side effect is that some people get very dizzy. Mm-hmm. And so she had the vaccine. And that's also the 11 year, I think she got, she had three shots. That yeah. Day, Tetanus, sure. meningitis usually and HPV. Yeah. Yeah. So she, so she felt, you know, a little woozy. So we, we had her lay down, we gave her some water. We just kind of hung out for like 10, 15 minutes and then she felt better and we went on our way. So we went back to the doctor and they were like, oh, we looked in her chart. We remember that last year she felt dizzy. So why don't we give her the shot? Let's make sure she's hydrated before, have her lay down and just, just we'll plan for you to stay put for 10, 15 minutes until, until you're ready. And she ended up feeling totally fine this time, but they, they are tracking that. Doctors are keeping track of these things because they don't want you to feel badly. They want you to feel healthy. Yes. Thank you. And I love hearing the, the story because it's important that I, and I, that's exactly the example I was saying when dizziness, because I'm thinking of the HPV, HPV vaccine. And like, I think Allison mentioned earlier, the CDC website is not hiding any of this information. If you actually go on and I'll put that in my show notes, they actually list every single vaccine and the known side effects, which is for example, HPV, um, the syncope, the common side effects of any vaccine, which is like fever, redness at the site, but you can actually see all of it. And they're not hiding information. And 
you know, another thing I hear is that, well, the CDC, they're hiding this stuff from us. And it, with all this pandemic, you know, stuff going on, it's like, well, no, they're not reputable. I'm like, no, they, they actually are. And I promise you, if you actually just took the time to go on that website, it is, it is a wealth of information and it's actually really honest. And I, I tell my families when they're like, well, how come you don't give vaccine inserts to all of your patients? Like, you know, like um, parents, some, some parents want the ingredient list. And I say, the ingredients are all obviously, do you know how to interpret those ingredients? Like, what will you do when you read all those ingredients? The ingredients are basically formulated in a safe dose, like you said, and studied for efficacy and safety um, by the FDA. And that's, so the really reading the ingredients aren't going to serve a purpose, but you can go on the CDC website. We do give VIS sheets, which are vaccine information sheets that go over the side effects. Um, but that kind of brings me to my next question about parents, you know, commonly saying about the unsafe ingredients and the unsafe toxins and that they're not, you know, the ingredients are not okay for children. Do you guys, I mean, I know you probably don't agree, but why, what would you say to parents in that standpoint? When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. The ingredients in the vaccines can sound really scary. Um, and uh, so, for example, formaldehyde is in the in ingredient in, in vaccines. And every ingredient that's in there is there for a reason. In the case of formaldehyde, it's there to make sure that the virus is inactive. And formaldehyde, when I use it in the lab, I have to use proper precautionary uh, measures. I have to wear gloves and use a fume hood and all that kind of stuff. But that's a bottle of pure formaldehyde um, you know, 100% formaldehyde that I have to treat so carefully. The amount in a vaccine is 
is very, very low. And formaldehyde is actually naturally occurring. It's found in a lot of fruits and it's found in a lot of our foods. Um, pears have lots of formaldehyde, uh, lots in quotation marks here. Uh, and uh, the amount in a vaccine is pretty comparable to uh, what we see in pears. And I don't think any of us worry about our children eating pears. In fact, if my child ate more pears, I'd probably be happier, right? So, um, but formaldehyde in large, large, large quantities can be dangerous, but the amounts that we get um, have been formulated appropriately um, so that they are safe for our children and safe for ourselves when we need booster shots or when we need shots as adults. Uh, so, uh, but, but vaccine safety, I think, is something that all of us worry about. And as you pointed out, uh, they go through a lot of testing. They go through clinical trials, not just in the United States. So even if you do worry about the independence of the CDC during these times or the independence of, um, of uh, you know, our scientific institutions in the United States right now. The CDC's guidelines on vaccinations aligns with those of every other nation. It would have to be some huge, massive conspiracy involving millions of people, all right, in order for vaccines not to have been safe throughout this entire time. And we don't get vaccines any more than what we actually need. As Allison pointed out, uh, the vaccine schedule is constantly reviewed. Uh, so for example, when I lived in Venezuela, I used to get shots against yellow fever because yellow fever was pretty common in Venezuela. But in the United States and North America and Europe, nobody gets a shot against yellow fever, right? Because in that case, it's possible that the risks of the vaccine might outweigh the benefits because the risk of yellow fever in the United States and North America is so, so, so incredibly low, right? But if there's a yellow fever outbreak at some point in time in, in the United States, then that those guidelines might shift. And trials for uh, these safety trials for drugs, uh, for vaccines, continue over years and years. Uh, so, for example, for the HPV vaccine, since it's relatively new in our vaccine schedule, uh, there's still ongoing studies to see just how long our immunity for HPV lasts. So, for example, if somebody got the HPV vaccine 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are they still immune? Uh, against HPV and or do we need to add a booster shot to the schedule to make sure that we remain immune against HPV? So uh, I think for that reason, um, parents can uh, take, uh, can, can, you know, feel good over the fact that the guidelines in the United States pretty much align with guidelines everywhere else in the world um, about the ingredients and the contents and the vaccine schedule itself. And if I can just tie it back to my my part about the um, how the vaccine schedule comes about. So Layla mentioned two things, right? So the ingredients are part of what is tested. So when the vaccines are approved for safety and efficacy, that is the vaccine in total, like the vaccine with all of those ingredients. So yes, it, it's nice to see what's in there in a list and know what's going in there, but it's the whole thing that is declared safe 
and that works by the FDA. Um, and then the other point about yellow fever was I mentioned that they consider the prevalence of the disease, right, when they decide. So in the U.S., the prevalence is low. So we it's like non-existent, right? So we don't get yellow fever vaccines here. Um, so that that's how those things fit into determining the vaccine schedule. Yeah. And it brings up a good point about COVID. So I get a lot of parents worried about, well, I don't want to give my child a COVID vaccine. And I actually, you know, as a pediatrician looking at, you know, the data right now with children, I am not sure if they'll actually in the first round even introduce a COVID vaccine for children because even though it's prevalent, the COVID virus, children are not having the complications nearly as much as an adult. So is the benefit there to vaccinate? Probably not when the risk of the actual illness is not that high. So, you know, you mentioned that about the benefit and the risk of, you know, yellow fever and prevalence is one thing, but also the fact that is this even causing a problem? And I talked about it on the other episode with Dr. Baldwin, how we look at illnesses that cause harm. Like, for example, I mentioned about the chickenpox. We look at illnesses that cause morbidity and mortality. So there's deaths associated. There's obviously severe hospitalizations. So it's not like we're creating vaccines for every single illness a child goes through. I mentioned on the other episode that like hand, foot and mouth, it's one of the most common, common viruses that children get. There will never be a vaccine for hand, foot and mouth because there's no morbidity and no mortality associated with it. Yes, kids have to stay home for a week, but there's no long-term sequelae of hand, foot and mouth, maybe some peeling skin like for on the fingernails. But it's it's really important that parents hear that, that we are not creating, when I say we, like the medical community is not in scientific community, are not creating things just to create it. It comes with a purpose and it comes because, hey, this thing is killing kids or this thing is actually causing a lot of complications for children, flu and every other thing that we vaccinate for. It's because of the illnesses and it's because of the outcomes that it can have for children. So I think that's such a key thing. And this whole COVID thing, I, parents are still so worried and I'm like, wait for it. If it does become approved, there's going to be a reason, but it may not be. I don't know if you guys agree. Um, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I had thought about it in that probably what will happen is hopefully what will happen is that a vaccine will go through all the required normal trials that it needs to go through before you start vaccinating people. I hope that we stick to all those rules. I hope we don't try to bypass them. They're critical and important and they're part of the reason why we trust the vaccine schedule and we trust the vaccines we have. So I, I hope that it goes that way and we do all those things. Once we have that, I think they will start vaccinating high risk groups first, like the people who are having severe outcomes um, and also the people who are most likely to be exposed. So probably medical professionals, right? So you'll vaccinate those people first. And then because kids are not getting as sick when they do get sick, and if you control spread in the rest of the population, then we protect the kids that way. And so the kids might not need the vaccine if we protect, if we stop spreading everybody else. And that that top that topic could open up a can of worms for a whole other topic that not we'd need like eight more hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking. I was talking to my parents the other day, and we were discussing. Oh, you know who would get the vaccine first? And they, you know grumble, grumble. These kids should get the vaccine first. They go to these parties and they're super spreaders. I'm like, you know, actually there's a point there, you know? Uh, so the people who seem to be spreading the virus most are asymptomatic people, you know, of a certain age range. Maybe, you know, 
th- that would be one way to, to, to handle it. But I, I have no idea. And I'm glad I'm not one of the decision makers for that because it cannot be easy. Absolutely. And I think it's important to also remember that if they, when they do go through it, like when they go through the approval, all of us as pediatricians and the scientific community are going to review the data on it, right? Like you said that I I agree, I don't want them to bypass just to get it out. I want them to go through the phases and I want to see the side effects that they're reporting, minor side effects, whatever, to weigh benefit and risk. Um, And that is something very important that parents need to remember that their pediatricians are doing this on a constant basis. I mean, I, I know I am. I, don't, I can't speak for every pediatrician, but we anytime a vaccine comes to us, we think about, okay, what's going on with this? What are the side effects? What are, you know, what's the benefit? What's the risk? And I, I really hope that parents hear me so clearly when I say this, because it is a a bunch of people working together to assure safety for our patients so that we're not seeing your kids sick in our office. The The last comment or last question I have, and I cannot thank you both enough for your time today, is the last myth I hear, and, and again, I know it may take a little longer, but we, we can briefly talk about it, is the Jenny McCarthy thing where she and also Andrew Wakefield, uh, which is a doctor that now is now got his license revo- revoked, and how vaccines cause autism. Basically, you know, the scientific evidence shows that that's not true. What are your guys' thoughts? So I think this is one of the longest lingering myths and concerns about for parents, uh, that there's some sort of link between autism and, and vaccines. And I think that there are very, there are very few topics that have been studied as thoroughly where so much money has been invested than to try to identify whether or not there is a link um, between autism and vaccines. And at this point in time, there are hundreds of thousands of patients, and that's without any exaggeration, um, that have participated in studies uh, where they've tried to find links and they have not. They're not since the original paper, which has now been disproven and uh, was retracted, and now we know that the original doctor who lost his license, who did those studies, uh, did those studies unethically and tested on patients who, where when he wasn't supposed to. Um, no association has has been found, and that study. Um, the original study uh, was done on a handful of patients and there was immediate concern in the scientific community and in the medical community that there might be a link uh, between uh, vaccines and autism. And a lot of measures were taken and those measures had severe consequences. Uh, You know, many parents stopped vaccinating their children. Um, The, that that delayed vaccine schedule, as we know it today, um, arose uh, from this myth. Some countries uh, rolled back the MMR uh, vaccine programs that they had, and there were measles outbreaks, and children unfortunately died because measles is a very, very contagious, very dangerous uh, disease. Um, so, but we know now that autism is. Uh, uh, primarily a genetic condition 
um, and that there's no association between vaccines and autism. And not only that, but individuals within the autistic community have highlighted that this myth can do legitimate harm to their community by leading to some sort of belief that uh, mm -hmm. individuals with autism are somehow damaged or that they're broken or that something happened to them. And this uh, really puts the autistic community on the outside, right? So uh, I think we need to reassess our, our beliefs around this myth and uh, really, there's no evidence supporting the fact that there's any sort of association between autism and vaccines. I'm also going to add one tiny little thing that's not related to vaccines, but related to some terminology, just because I, I think it's important to be sensitive to the way that people like to be referred to. There are many people in the autistic community who prefer the phrase autistic individual as opposed to individual with autism. And I know there's there's a lot of disagreement between like parents of autistic kids and autistic adults and how they feel about that. But I, I just wanted to mention that because it goes into this, this whole idea that Layla was talking about, like, like that this myth is really damaging to a community of people. And so, and we deserve to listen to what they have to say. Absolutely. And I'm going to be linking actually a lot of those art, um, articles and research studies that show that there is no correlation those are actually, everyone listening, those are actually on the AAP website. And I'm going to link that for you in my show notes, because like Layla said, there are hundreds of research studies. And actually, the most recent recent one was actually, I believe, this year, um, or maybe late last year. I can't remember the exact date, but a lot of research. They're constantly looking just to debunk this one article that was obviously not a good design study that was done, I think, in the early 2000s um, by Andrew Wakefield. But this is important that we we understand that it is not correlated. It is a genetic condition. I really appreciate you bringing that up so eloquently. The other thing, the other like unintended, I don't know if unintended consequence is the right word, but the other thing that happens because so many studies have been done on this one question, even though there's like we know this, like there's so much evidence. We really don't need to spend any more money and any more time enrolling any more patients and any more studies to settle this. There's no debate. There's a lot of other questions that we have in science and in vaccines and in disease that we, we could be studying and just like, we don't have infinite resources. We have finite resources and we're, these resources are going to answer a question that we already know the answer to. And that to me is really frustrating. Um, and I also wanted to add that we have another post on our blog that's, are there, I, the exact title, I don't remember off the top of my head, but something like, are there actually more cases of autism? So there's rising diagnosis, but there's a question of whether that's actually rising prevalence of disease. And so there, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And it's a stat that gets thrown out all the time. And I do a lot of neurodevelopmental work in my lab. And this stat gets thrown around even at the highest levels of PhD scientists, and I'm always like, wait, let's let's reconsider your your argument here about whether there really is. You hear the term epidemic of autism, and I'll be doing. April is Autism Awareness Month, so I'm going to be actually doing a series of episodes. Everyone listening about autism diagnosis. Um, obviously, I'm going to be actually I'm going to be bringing on a speech therapist that and a developmental therapist that works with children with autism because I think it's so important that we hear it from all aspects because it is something that is really important to understand and research is always coming out about it. But like 
Allison said, it's not the vaccine. So please remember that when you are deciding to vaccinate your children. Allison and Layla, I am so grateful for you both. You guys are a wealth of information. This obviously went a little bit more than you know what we'd planned in terms of time. What would be your final message for everyone listening? Obviously, I have a lot of parents listening. So what would be your final message to them? I think that having having concerns about vaccines is it's normal, right? These are things that you haven't learned about that even me as a scientist, like hadn't learned about specifically. So these questions and concerns are real. They're valid. Um, and so I don't want people to be afraid to ask the questions. And so I'm grateful for like podcasts like this to help say, yes, this is a concern you have. Let's talk about it. Let's dig into the data. Let's talk about and try to ease your concerns. And, and then you should also follow our, our blog. We're on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter. We're on all those places. So uh, in addition to vaccinating your kids, I had two more points to raise. One is that oftentimes when we don't vaccinate, especially if we're a family that's well-educated and has wealth, the people who are impacted most are the people who do not have health or do not have wealth. Um, they're individuals who are immunocompromised in our community, children who are recovering from cancer in our community, or children whose parents, as I mentioned before, can't afford to take time off work, right? So we have to consider these public health initiatives at a community level. And the second thing that I wanted to mention is that throughout this entire podcast, we've talked about the safety of vaccines and the importance of the scientific and medical communities. And um, the funding that these groups receive uh, the funding that our public health initiatives receive, all of this is driven by our vote, right? So I really hope that parents um, take public health initiatives into account when they decide for whom to vote, whichever way it is, right? Um, but that they consider that the integrity of our public health institutions is very important and that the safety of these uh, of these medical devices, of these medications that our entire society relies on uh, can depend on something as simple as our vote, right? So please go out and vote uh, whichever way you choose to vote, but please do vote. It's so important. I cannot agree with more, cannot agree with you all more about you know your final messages. And again, I am so grateful for having you both on the episode today. I'm going to be linking their website and obviously their social media handles, like I mentioned, including a bunch of resources that I mentioned already in this episode: the CDC schedule, the CDC website, um, the articles. You know, obviously talking, like I said, about the autism and whatnot. I am so grateful for you both. I hope that you all can come on again to talk about other topics that I've read about on your website and your blog. And again, I'm so thankful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Also, are you vaccinating even during COVID? Yes, we yes. are. 
so parents can get their vaccines on time during an epidemic. Yes. Can you believe it? And, you know, it, actually, that's a great that's a great point because uh, parents were hesitant to come in because they were scared. And that was another thing that boggled my mind. I mentioned that I, when I'm sitting there and they're hesitant to vaccinate, I'm like, wait, what, we this is that this should show you that this is why we should vaccinate. But besides the point, um, but a lot of parents didn't leave. They didn't want to come out. And then they finally are getting their children caught up and we're actually catching them up. For some children, miss their like 15 month vaccines, miss their 18 month vaccines. So we're having to catch them up. And my advice for my final advice is go on schedule, like we said earlier in this episode. Trust your pediatrician. And if your pediatrician is saying you don't need vaccines, if your family doctor is saying you don't need vaccines, I really want you to understand what you heard in this episode. Take it from the scientists, take it from the medical community that. If someone is an outlier, there's a reason why they're an outlier. They're not trying to be this innovative person. They're not trying to be this. Sometimes I feel like some doctors say this to be a celebrity of some kind. I don't know why some doctors do this, that they promote anti-vaccination. But you need to listen to the scientists and the doctors that are promoting vaccination because there is an interest there to help our patients and our children. And I didn't mention this earlier, but I obviously vaccinate my son. I vaccinate him on schedule. By the way, you can be pro-vaccine, but also anti-over-prescribing medicine. People think that you have to be one or the other. You have to be anti-vaccine, organic. You can't do, you have to do like natural things. No, I actually do vaccinate my, my son, but we're very big on, you know, natural things. We eat healthy. We drink a lot of water. We take care of ourselves. I don't over-prescribe antibiotics if they're not necessary. I'm very low. I actually my entire practice, I prescribe the least amount of medicines, um, you know, like prescriptions, because I believe that our body is able to handle a lot of viruses, which a lot of kids get. But the things that we're preventing with vaccination, these are things that are problematic. And that is why I support them. And that's, I think, a really important point that I think parents need to hear, too, is that you can be both. You can be holistic. I'm putting that in quotes. You can be, you know, there's so many, crun I, I, I'm putting in quotes and crunchy crunchy moms who are like, well, no, I have to do this, that, and the other. I can't vaccinate. I can't do this. No, you can provide this life-saving, you know, intervention for your child and still do alternative things, you know, meaning obviously take the advice of a, of a, of a doctor, but you can be both. Vaccines save lives and they come from a, um, a place of research. They come from a place of wanting to help kids. Thank you both. I, I could talk forever with you both, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. And again, everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media, and if you're not already, follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Have you heard about the terrible twos or three-nagers? Yes, the toddler years can be tough. There is no denying that any phase of parenting can be really hard. There may be picky eating, tantrums, and struggles with potty training. But there is a lot of amazing things that you will see your toddler do during these years. 
I want you to enter the toddler years understanding toddler development and behavior so you can better approach tricky situations with your child. With resources on picky eating, potty training, tantrums, and other common toddler behavior like sleep refusal and toddler development, the toddler resources here at Peds Doc Talk aim to provide you with the knowledge you need to, dare I say, find some or a lot of enjoyment in the toddler years. For more on my on-demand courses, make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and check out resources for whatever you need. Have a friend? It also makes a perfect gift. Visit pedsdoctalk.com and click courses for more.